0: Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Crystal. Uh, and I would like to welcome everyone to today's program, the new coronavirus COVID-19 Updated Guidelines for People Coping with Cancer. Um, today's program is a, um, is supported by Glenn Sousness Klein, Novartis Oncology, Seattle Genetics, the Friends of Cancer Care, the Dinah Neffler Fund, and the generous time and expertise of our expert faculty. And um, I want to say that today's program is also a collaborative effort between cancer care and many other cancer organizations. And really because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, we have so many of you on the call today. So we have over 357 participants on the call today. I know some of you are still registering, but there you are. This is what we have for the moment. And you actually come from uh, and also, uh, also from different regions of the country, so from rural and urban, suburban and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Egypt, Japan, Mexico, Norway, Russia, Syria, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And um, we're delighted to have all of you on this call today. Um, And um, today's program is occurring on Monday, April 20th, 2020. So we are presenting information that we know at this point in time, which is that you all are aware of that. Um, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Gralla. Dr. Gralla is a professor of medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacobi Medical Center. And uh, Dr. Gralla will be presenting updated guidelines about the coronavirus COVID-19 for people coping with cancer and how to minimize your exposure to COVID-19, the role of social distancing. And uh, Dr. Gralla actually has spoken on the program that we did, the very first program we did about a month ago. So it's a great pleasure that I turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gralla.
2: Hello to everyone, and thank you, Carolyn. I am uh, Dr. Richard Gralla, and I'm a medical oncologist at the Albert Einstein Cancer Center in New York. I have the pleasure of introducing this program for April 20th, which will discuss many aspects of the COVID-9 or coronavirus infection, with a special focus on caring for those with cancer while this illness is in our community. We are fortunate to have a very knowledgeable and helpful panel on the call today, and I look forward to their presentations. We hear so much on the news these days about the COVID-19 pandemic, and I'm afraid that we will have to be dealing with these issues for many weeks and months to come. Just for clarification you may hear three terms discussed, coronavirus, COVID-19, and SARS-CoV-2. The name of the illness is COVID-19. The co-part of that is for coronavirus. The VI stands for virus, while the D stands for disease. And, of course, 19 is for the year 2019, when this was first identified. The actual virus that causes the problem is somewhat confusingly named SARS-CoV-2, which means that this is related to but not identical to the virus causing the SARS disease from about 17 years ago. When you get a test to see if you have COVID-19 at this time, a nasal swab, it tests for that specific SARS-CoV-2 virus itself. As you may be aware, there are two types of testing. The first is diagnostic to see if one has the virus right now, the so-called nasal swab. The second is a blood serological test to see if one has developed antibodies from recent infection with the virus. This may also imply, this blood test, the likelihood that one has acquired some degree of immunity. It appears that some people can have the virus without having symptoms. However, for many people, there are indeed symptoms. When a person gets the illness, there are a variety of possible early symptoms, the most common of which uh, is a fever, body aches, fatigue, accompanied by a dry cough. Fewer people also have gastrointestinal issues as well, including nausea and diarrhea, but most common is the cough, fever, and fatigue. The impact of these symptoms varies in different people from quite mild to much more. What we are most concerned about, and what particularly raises red flags, is increasing shortness of breath. If symptoms are mild, then home care with ordinary medicines such as Tylenol are fine. But with increasing shortness of breath, formal medical care needs to be consulted right away. If you're in doubt, you should always call your doctor for advice. Now, in taking uh, care at home, there's been some earlier talk about avoiding such medicines as ibuprofen, Advil, Motrin, etc., but this recommendation has come into some question recently, and it's not clear that there is any additional risk with common medicines such as ibuprofen. I will just review some of the important safety measures that have been circulating. The staying at home as much as possible is really good advice to limit the spread and reduce personal risk. Dr. Martin will discuss the increased use of televisits by your oncology team, which is directed at keeping patients safe while maintaining good anti-cancer care. All of us are now aware of the term social distancing, being at least six feet or two meters from others, and in many states and countries about isolating at home. This is all a very good strategy for everyone, and particularly for those with cancer. Studies have shown that the virus can live for many hours on most surfaces and even for days on plastic and stainless steel. This is why cleaning surfaces with potent chemicals such as bleach or strong alcohol or products like Lysol is important. Good hand washing with soap and water is excellent. This should be done frequently and for at least 20 seconds and after any possible contact. The soap need not be so-called antibacterial soap, just regular soap, and follow the 20-second thorough hand washing. If soap and water is not available, the alcohol hand sanitizers with about 70% alcohol are a good measure. In cleaning surfaces and in using the alcohol hand sanitizers, these substances need to dry. You may have heard discussions about masks. The typical surgical mask, or the cloth, perhaps homemade mask, generally protects others against the person wearing it. So it has a role, especially if everyone close by is wearing one. But it's not too helpful for the individual wearing it. But it may be a good public health policy. But please recall, after handling such a mask, if you're Reusing, and if you're reusing the mask, you must wash your hands as they might have been exposed to the outside of the mask by touching the mask, and the outside of the mask could be contaminated. It would then be good to sanitize the mask or leave it alone for a few days if it's being used again. The so-called N95 mask is more protective for the individual, but they remain in very short supply. They t- too need to be sanitized if reused, And if the hand-washing remains important with these as well. Remember, in normal times with adequate supplies, none of these would be reused. We must avoid others who have the infection. This is not easy to do in the home, but it's a priority. Dr. Wong will discuss this further, and I would advise thinking about a plan for your own home as to how to handle a situation if a member of the household begins to show symptoms or is known to have the infection. This includes the person with cancer and any others in the home. New York State and some other states have recently issued guidance on when individuals who have tested positive for COVID-19 after recovery may be released from home isolation. ICD does minimal requirements and recommendations which may change as more information and testing become available. I'll briefly discuss these preliminary guidelines for basic information, but I think we all believe these need to be exceeded before coming in contact with vulnerable individuals at increased risk, such as those over 70 and those with cancer. Here are the recommendations. If one is tested positive for COVID-19 but has been entirely asymptomatic, they may discontinue home isolation if at least seven days have passed since their first positive COVID-19 diagnostic test, and the individual has no subsequent illness. Also, if one has tested positive for COVID-19 but has had symptoms, then that person may be released from isolation if all three criteria below have been achieved. One, at least three days have passed since recovery, which means no fever without the use of fever-reducing medicines. And two, there's marked improvement in any respiratory symptoms cough, shortness of breath, and at least seven days have passed since the first symptoms appeared. For both of these situations, ideally one should have repeat testing, generally advised to be done twice, to show that there's no longer any virus found. However, at this time, it might be difficult to secure that advised retesting. While these time periods may be too soon for recovered individuals to be in any prolonged direct contact with vulnerable individuals, it is still useful that these recovered individuals who may have acquired some degree of immunity might be the right ones to shop for others and do helpful tasks while following all the precautions that we've already discussed and maybe waiting a bit longer to have contact with those at increased risk unless retesting has confirmed no further virus. And, of course, these individuals should be vigilant about wearing masks to protect others, particularly follow-up testing is not available. All the basic recommendations that I just mentioned make good sense for all of us. Doctors Martin, Wong, and Campbell will further discuss these recommendations and practical advice for individuals and families with cancer who may have some special considerations and for whom we need to be extra careful. Later in the program, Ms. Chetalian will discuss about resources for getting the latest information, which can be helpful to all of us. Our panel will be presenting a lot of information, and we recognize you may have many questions. We'll be happy to discuss more about these and all related issues when we have the question period later in the program. I'm now to turn the program back to Carolyn Messner, and we'll look forward to the presentations by my colleagues. Carolyn? Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Quella. That was her. It's a wonderful introduction to this uh, call,
1: Ashley, extraordinary. And uh, I know there'll be questions during the Q&A and, uh, for you as well. So thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for your role in planning this whole program. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is Chief Lymphoma Program, Associate Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician of New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin is going to be addressing, understanding how COVID-19 may influence your treatment for cancer, the important role of telehealth appointments with your health care team, what they are, and suggestions to the care for telehealth appointments. It's really my great pleasure to turn over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin.
3: Thank you very much, Dr.
4: Mechner, and thank you very much, Dr. Brawler, for that uh, introduction to uh, the COVID-19
3: illness.
4: Uh, like Dr. Gralla, I am uh in New York, originally from Canada but I'm in New York now, and we are uh in the American
3: epicenter
4: of the covid nineteen illness. We're certainly learning a lot about it uh currently at uh Cornell, we have over two hundred people admitted and over seven hundred people in intensive care units and uh I'm currently taking care of several. Uh, people with COVID-19 on our inpatient service as well as uh, several others in our outpatient service. And a couple of things have really struck me. One of them is that overwhelmingly our inpatients are getting better and going home and overwhelmingly our outpatients, although they uh, often report significant symptoms, most of them don't ever need to be in the hospital. Uh, but obviously, um, despite that, our, our goal, as Dr. Rala has Uh, nicely outlined. Our goal really is to prevent uh, the COVID-19 illness, particularly in people with cancer and their uh, family members and and, um, caregivers. Now, I'll say that I had originally expected the numbers of uh, people with cancer and COVID-19 to be much higher than the numbers that we are seeing in our hospital. And uh, when we've done a survey recently of all of the COVID-19 patients seen at New York Presbyterian over the past uh, one and a half months, we found that, in fact, it's an overwhelmingly small number of people with cancer who are experiencing COVID-19. And I spoke with one of my uh, patients about this. She's a young woman who just uh, completed uh, chemotherapy for Hodgkin lymphoma. She's been physician herself, and she told me, well, you know, for the past six months, I've been an expert at social distancing and hand hygiene. And so this has just been simply a continuation of what I've been doing for the past six months. And uh, I think that's maybe why we're seeing, in fact, that um, fortunately our, our cancer uh, population, people dealing with cancer, are, in fact, avoiding this. Dr. Varla mentioned the importance of social distancing, and one form of social distancing is video visits. Video visits really allow people with cancer to stay home to avoid travel, uh, to places where they might be more in and count- likely to encounter uh, COVID-19 infection. Also, they allow hospitals to consolidate staffing, minimize staff travel, uh, and reduce the likelihood of cross-contamination uh, from multiple people seeing uh, multiple uh, multiple providers seeing multiple people. Um, so the. the the idea of video visits really has a major role in this and as a result what we've seen is a massive increase in video visits. From uh, April or from March to April we saw a roughly, I'm sorry, from February to March we saw a roughly 2,000 fold increase in video visits at uh, Cornell and our cancer practice and from February to April we saw a 10,000 fold increase in video visits. So, this clearly something that can be done and and rolled out very quickly. Now, I do want to emphasize that hematology-oncology clinics are overwhelmingly safe places to be. We've done everything we can to make these as safe as possible by reducing volumes, by um, ensuring that people of interest are being screened in advance of coming to clinics, uh, uh, segregating people uh, suspected or known positive infections from people who, who are unlikely to have infections, so if somebody does need to be in a hematology-oncology clinic they shouldn't feel nervous about going there, we, we're going to take care of them the same way we always have been. Nonetheless, I think video visits really are an important part of medicine right now, and as Dr. Grala mentioned, they likely are, are going to be important for the weeks and months to come. Video visits can be used uh, often during an initial consultation or second opinion where the bulk of the visit really is used for planning, education, or counseling. As well, I'm using video visits frequently in follow-up, particularly for people who have been uh, clinically stable for long periods of time. Additionally, I've been talking to people a day before their infusion. This allows them to... Um, when they come to clinic go directly to the infusion center rather than uh, having to go through phlebotomy and then see the doctor in the clinic and spend more time in the waiting room or trying to get them through the waiting room as quickly as possible uh, It's also I think um, important to note that labs can be done remotely. One of the things we initially struggled with was well we're going to we're bringing people in so that we can do labs well there is a there are a plethora of lab services, lab core, labs, others that are in the community, including visiting nurse services that will often come to people's homes to draw labs, who are finding that video visits can be rolled out on a, on a large scale and that labs don't always need to be done at a central location like our hospital. As I mentioned, not everybody needs to be having video visits, uh, particularly if a physical exam is required or when a treatment is required. And... Um, Uh, Very often doctors, physician assistants, nurses uh, can help figure out when video visits are or are not appropriate. And if you have a question about whether you need to be seen in the clinic or or if it can be done uh, via video, then I would encourage you to talk to your healthcare providers about that in advance. Video visits do require some setup. They require some hardware, uh, some software in a suitable setting. The setting obviously should be somewhere fairly quiet and private. The hardware can typically be a smartphone, a tablet, or a laptop or desktop computer. It's important to note that some of the older devices may not support the software that's currently uh, required for many video visits. Um, so that has been a limit. We found that somewhere between uh, 10 and 15 percent of people in our oncology clinic don't have the uh, hardware necessary to support the software required for video visits. Different institutions use different forms of software. For example, at uh, you New know, Presbyterian, we use uh, MyChart, which is implemented within the Epic electronic Medical Records. Other institutions also use Zoom. Uh, FaceTime uh, for Apple devices is also acceptable. Ideally, software should prioritize privacy. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard a lot about privacy concerns with Zoom. Zoom can be used in a way that makes it more private by setting it up with passwords and having a single host allow people to enter the conversation. So don't um, let that discourage you from using uh, video visits.
1: If you're using
4: a, a smartphone or a tablet, you should make sure that you download the appropriate app prior to your video visit. In fact, I would encourage you to prepare couple of days in advance for the video visit if possible, because what you'll find is that occasionally you have to update the browser on your laptop or you have to update the app. And uh, oftentimes, people will call into the hospitals or clinics and get tech support from our uh, uh, IT groups or from our uh, physicians' assistants or nurses to help them make sure that they can... um, Use the technology appropriately. I think it's worthwhile trying to log in and see if you can get in uh, to the applet ahead of time and make sure that you can do that. It's Also, I think a good idea to have a backup plan. So when you make your uh, first video visit, um, you might say, well, I'm going to do this with um, my chart, but if that's not working, can we use Zoom? And if that's not working, can we use a, a telephone call so that there's no panic? Um if the first attempt doesn't work, we have something else that we can go to. And lastly, as, as Dr. Grawler mentioned, I don't think that we should be thinking of this as a, a one-time thing. The future of medicine is going to involve telemedicine for sure for the weeks and months to come, likely for longer and that. So I think it's worthwhile in uh, setting up your system now so that you're prepared for the weeks and months to come as we continue to work with COVID-19. And we may find, I'm sure, that in fact this has significant benefits in other settings, for example, research settings that allow people to uh, participate in clinical trials from afar. So I think, um, you know, it's uh, it's an unfortunate time to have to try things like this out, but I think that we all ultimately are going to benefit from telemedicine in the future. So I think Dr. Wong has uh, the, the floor next.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Martin. That was excellent and, and really um, very comprehensive, and also very um, excellent discussion about um, how the use of telehealth if I know Dr. Wong. I'm going to even say more about it. It's really important. People really understand that it's just, it's so those appointments are so important. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and our next our next speaker is uh, Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is professor of medicine, Cutaneous cancers, medical oncology. Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the University of Texas, and the Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong is going to be addressing practical guidelines to follow if a family member, partner, or caregiver is diagnosed with COVID-19. And if diagnosed with COVID-19, communicating with your health care team using telehealth and its appointments. And it's really my great pleasure to have this program over to my, my esteemed colleague, Dr. Michael Wong.
5: Welcome, and it's a privilege and a pleasure to be able to speak to you all today. And I want to build on what Dr. Grella and Dr. Martin spoke about. And, and uh, I have to tell you, I have the benefit of reaching out to my fellow colleagues um, uh, who uh, are in this, this, this uh, COVID space and working with uh, directly at policy in this area. I want to talk about practical things. And Dr. Grawler mentioned specifically that the good news is that we don't anticipate that patients, most patients, we anticipate that most patients would not have to go to hospital. That's great news. But what do you do if you are at home and you're sick or have to look after someone that's sick? And what are some of the practical things? We talked about this issue of social distancing and how do you implement this at home? i I realize this is a, a call that reaches us many people, some which are not in this continent. I was on an international phone call, and I was reminded by some folks that you know, what we defined as, as a home and a space and, is different from country to country. But, but you know, if possible, we, we have the person who's stay in one room away from other people as much as possible, and if possible, have them use a separate bathroom, um, uh, we, we ask folks to avoid sharing personal household items, dishes, towels, bedding. And importantly, uh, Dr. Grouse spoke about having a, a, a covering over the face, a cloth covering. And, uh, uh, this is helpful to avoid, uh, transmission. And so, uh, we ask that the, the person who's sick wears one, uh, and if they can't wear one to have, uh, the person looking after them wear one. Ideally, uh, the best situation to have uh, both the caregiver and the person who's ill wear the, the face covering. Um, obviously, if you're going to be leaving the house, the person who's, uh, who's affected should also wear a, a, a covering over the mouth. Hand washing is very important. And just to reiterate what Dr. Gralla said, the 20-second rule. You can people say you can hum a, t- a tune, you know, like "Happy Birthday to Me" or whatever. Just to be aware that uh, you, you ha- it's, uh, that you have to soap up thoroughly all parts of the hand. And uh, Dr. Gralla also spoke about using hand sanitizers at least, uh, and and we uh, advise that you use them and cover all surfaces of your hand, rub them together until they feel dry. That's important. And uh, and Uh, one of the important things is is to avoid touching your own uh, eyes, nose, and mouth. And and one of the uh, advantages of wearing a a covering over your own face is that it reminds us not to do that. And we all have these uh, uh, physical tics. I have them myself where you just touch yourself and just having a covering over your mouth and uh, and nose reminds you not to do that. The recommendation is to use household cleaning space and, uh, and... these are to, to really wipe down uh, all the surfaces in the home, especially those uh, things like countertops, tabletops, door knobs. Um, and if you, there's laundry and soil, wear gloves when having this and to wash laundry sorely. That's very important. And uh, one of the difficult things for everyone is this quarantine business, but this is especially important if you have someone at home who's ill, and uh, you want to avoid having unnecessary visitors. The last part I want to talk about is is, is telehealth, because this is a, an outreach that we are all doing from the medical side to our patients in a situation where uh, we are social distancing. And the important thing here is communication in any way, shape, or form. And telehealth is an attempt to, to maintain that, that thread of communication. And uh, you can have telehealth, occurring with the physician or, or a member of their team, the nurse practitioner, the mid-level practitioner, the nurses. It's really the communication device. And uh, uh, Dr. Martin spoke uh, thoroughly about the tablet devices that are important, but I remind folks that at the very least, when it, when it comes down to it, there's a telephone. And that's a sort of a, a device as well that, although not tele, is at least an attempt to communicate. And uh, I've Participated in telehealth conferences with patients, and sometimes, for whatever reason, the connection drops, and and uh, we speak this using the telephone. That's very important to realize. It does not have to be a, uh, any fancier than that. Uh, the bottom line is communication. And having said that, uh, Doctor Martin mentioned getting ready for this by, uh, by sort of preparing for, this, uh, for it technically, but I tell folks also, because we cannot see you or cannot r- pick up the social cues uh, readily. that's um, writing things down, making sure the questions are addressed, and interrupting your doctor. This is something people fear to do, but we, if I can't see you well or there's a lag in the transmission or I'm doing this over the phone, make sure you pipe up. It's not personal. We're just trying to get the com- uh, communication across. Um, we tell folks that, uh, that uh, the where of doing it, you can do it uh, in any location, but privacy is important. And um, uh, for folks that have uh, difficulty hearing, um, one of the things I find useful, because I, f- I don't hear as well as I used to, is I steal my, uh, my, my, my son's gaming headset. And believe it or not, those things really work well. Uh, because you can hear really well and there's a, a microphone. So whatever you think you need to do to get there is important. Um, and lastly, uh, uh, I want to circle back and speak about the essential part of it, which is communicating with the he- healthcare team. It's difficult when you're looking after someone at home to understand the full gamut of what you have to look for. So i tell folks uh, that if you suspect you're having trouble to reach out early to your healthcare team, especially to your oncologist, to understand what's involved and to understand um, uh, what to look for. Your case as a cancer patient is unique to you, and the treatments you're getting are very unique to you, and your oncologist has the best understanding of the waxing and waning of your situation. And, of course, uh, they have the best understanding about the risk that you may be undergoing because different patients are at different stages of their treatment, be it in in uh, induction, be it in full treatment, being in recovery, and they have a, uh, a very good understanding of the risks involved with your therapy. So it's impossible in a phone conference to really encapsulate the entirety of this, but the, the concept here that's, uh, that overwhelmingly is important and I want to leave you with is communication, to reach out, to know who to call, uh, and to know what mechanism you have to do it. And again, there doesn't have to be anything faster than a telephone. Video conferencing is perfect because we can see each other and pick up on things and see things. That's very important. Um, and I want to end as well by saying that uh, 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 what we talked about today is our best ideas of what uh, uh, we can do today, uh, but to be aware and to maintain uh, communication with the healthcare care team because part of their job is to filter all this information coming down to make it relevant to you. And at that, I'll end and, and pass the microphone uh, back to uh, Dr. Mesner.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was really superb, excellent. And also, uh, what you've just said at the very end, that um, really there's so much information coming out. To really speak with your health team to get the information that you need that's relevant to your situation. So thank you so much, Dr. Wong. And I know there'll be questions for you as well. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Toby Campbell. Dr. Campbell is Associate Professor of Medicine, Thoracic, Medical Oncologist, Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Palliative Care, Chief of Palliative Care, Ellen and Peter O. Johnson, Chair in Palliative Care. And Dr. Campbell is going to be addressing understanding the role of supportive care and making your wishes known to your loved ones and health care team. It's really my great pleasure to have our offer to my esteem colleague, Dr. Campbell.
3: Hello, everyone. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and thanks to my colleagues, Dr. Krala and Martin and Wong, for their excellent um, presentations. I am um, both a medical oncologist as well as a palliative care clinician, and in this conference, I'm going to be speaking from the perspective of a palliative care clinician. Um, the first task that I want to address is having everyone get on the same page about exactly what I mean when we're talking about palliative care or supportive care or special care or whatever term you might know this by. And let's make sure we're all on the same page because there are many times misconceptions about what we mean when we talk about palliative care. I think just from a global perspective, we are the sorts of people who come running towards trouble, towards distress, towards people who are worried and scared. We move towards emotion. We're comfortable in rooms where people are having strong emotions and strong reactions, where people find themselves in a, a scary spot, are worried or sad or angry. Um, those are the places where we want to be because that's where we feel like we can be helpful. And if nothing else, this COVID-19 pandemic, for many of you, I imagine, is a scary situation. So whether you call it palliative care or supportive care, our teams provide specialized medical care for people living with a serious illness, regardless of what that serious illness is. I call it palliative care, but some health systems call it supportive care or special care or maybe even some other names. This is just the type of care focused on helping you get relief from symptoms and stress of your illness. Our goal is always to improve your quality of life to help you live well in the face of whatever illness you're dealing with. And we are very interested in how both you and your loved ones are doing. Palliative care is generally provided by a specially trained group of folks, often there's doctors, nurses, other specialists, social work, chaplaincy, maybe even others, who work with you and your other doctors to address these needs. We focus on the needs of the patient, not really the disease. So regardless of where you're trying to go, we're going to try to help you get there. It's appropriate at any age and any stage of an illness, and it absolutely can be provided along with curative treatment, because curative treatment for a serious disease is still a serious disease. So what do we do? Well, many people associate palliative care with relieving suffering and symptoms from the disease, from stress, but we also help people cope with a serious illness, help you develop some strategies to cope with something that's Uh, really hard to deal with. We help make sure that your treatment is matched well to your goals. Some people call that assisted decision-making. Your oncologist and you are making the decisions, we are merely there to explore those with you, to understand where you're trying to go, and try to help you match your treatment and your goals perfectly. We believe strongly in developing relationships so that we can advocate for you, if you ever need that. Basically, in those moments, where someone is asking you where you're trying to go and then guides you towards those treatments in line with those goals, then they're practicing palliative care. For many people, their oncologist and their oncologist team, uh, that's where you're getting your palliative care from. Only sometimes do you meet with a specialist in palliative care. We often explore the future with you. We might ask questions like, when you think about the future, what are you hoping for? For... When you think about the future, what are you worried about? When we're asking those questions, that reminds me of advanced care planning, which really is the second purpose of my um, comments today on this call. Advanced care planning is really planning. It's preparing. It's looking ahead. It's imagining how we might respond to a particular situation. But there are no guarantees that any of those situations are going to occur. So it's just planning. Sometimes the planning uh, comes true. The things that we had anticipated might happen. Sometimes they happen. And lots of times they don't. But just because we can't be sure, because there's uncertainty, doesn't mean we can't plan. So I wanted to prepare you in case you participate in an advanced care planning conversation or you're interested in participating in one, what that might look like, what it might sound like. I wanted to prepare you for some of the questions that you might hear. We at the University of Wisconsin have been uh, trying to reach out to all of our cancer patients who don't already have an advanced care plan to give them an opportunity to um, have one of those conversations with one of, with someone of, uh, that loves them, a loved one. And so let me give you a sense. Uh, I think just knowing what the questions might sound like helps take out some of the uh, fear about it. So there's just three steps at the beginning. First, pick a person. See your healthcare decision maker. Pick someone who you feel could speak for you if you were ever in this position where you couldn't speak for yourself. And then the second step is pretty obvious. Talk to them about what matters most to you. And the third step is think about what kinds of things you would want if you became seriously ill because of COVID-19. Let me remind you, as you've heard before, that many people with this virus actually do just fine, are minimally or asymptomatic. So I am... We are, again, just planning just in case something more serious were to occur. Uh, some of the additional questions, you, you might get an introduction like, you know, I know this is a difficult and scary time, and I'm hoping we can talk about what's important to you so that we can make sure you get the best care possible. Um, it's common for us to try to learn from people about what they understand. So we might ask questions like, what do you understand about how COVID-19 could affect your health? What are you currently doing to protect yourself from getting this virus? We might tell you a little bit about what we see as your risks. So it might sound like most people who get the coronavirus, COVID-19, get better on their own. However, some people with certain risk factors, like older or lung disease, or have other health problems, they can get very sick, and sometimes they don't survive. The treatments that we use try to help people. Like breathing machines, sometimes they don't work in people with these illnesses. Um, we really want to make sure that you don't get the virus, but it's important to prepare just in case you do. As we're exploring this, we might ask questions like, what would be most important for you and your health care providers or loved ones to know if you became very sick or couldn't speak for yourself? Another question. Um, what abilities are so important to you that you couldn't imagine living without them? Another, with all that's going on, what are you most worried about? And so and so on, as we explore the things that matter to you and ways in which the healthcare system can most effectively take care of you. Um, sometimes, the final thing that I'll close with is sometimes your doctors are modifying treatments in order to minimize risk, as you've heard from my colleagues already. And so in this circumstance, I think it's important to remember that your oncologist's job is to make sure you get the best care possible. And sometimes that means minimizing your risk. Sometimes that means you know, changing the chemotherapy because it was too toxic, for example. And in this case, sometimes that means changing things to protect you, to minimize, as you heard, the number of times it needs to come to clinic. So now we're doing telemedicine visits. And sometimes that might even mean changing the way that your treatment is delivered or even changing the medications to decrease, say, your risk of low blood counts. That would put you at higher risk of infection. So just being aware that oncology clinics around the country are doing lots of things to try and protect people, um, to try and keep them safe, to try and help them accomplish their goals. Um, and one of those things that we're doing is thinking ahead, making plans, and in that capacity you might engage with someone from the palliative care team or the supportive oncology team to complete an advanced care plan. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Messner.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, Dr. Campbell. That was very informative and an excellent presentation. Thank you so much. I know there were questions to you also during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And um our next our next speaker is uh Ms. Um, and Ms. Chitalian is an oncology social worker um, at Cancer Care and she is um, the uh children and women's uh, children and women's uh, program coordinator. And Ms. Chitalian is going to address issues of social distancing and Um, also, uh, um, and it will also address, um, the services of cancer care. So, um, I'm now delighted to turn this phone over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Shatillion.
6: Thank you, Dr. Mesner. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Lauren, and I'm cancer care woman and children's program coordinator and an oncology social worker. Cancer Care is a non-profit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. These services include short-term counseling, support groups, educational workshops, reading material, as well as limited financial support. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are aware of the financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and psychological impacts that a cancer diagnosis can have on the individual and their loved ones. During this pandemic, Cancer Care has created several resources relevant to COVID-19. On Cancer Care's website, there is a COVID-19 landing page that includes recorded educational workshops, publications, a podcast meeting series, Cancer Care's blog, and advocacy efforts. You can also find information about current financial assistance for those in active cancer treatment and impacted by COVID-19. This information can be very useful in navigating many preventing concerns related to COVID-19. A cancer diagnosis can be very overwhelming. Additional support and guidance, as well as establishing a supportive network, may help to relieve feelings of anxiety related to one's diagnosis. Cancer Care short-term cancer-focused counseling is offered over the telephone nationally to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers. Working one-on-one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. And joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience. You may understand what you may encounter throughout diagnosis and treatment. Physical, social, and emotional challenges may arise with diagnosis of cancer throughout one's treatment as well as post-treatment. It can be beneficial to determine ways to approach challenges that may surface. There may be several recent challenges that individuals have experienced in regards to COVID-19. One possible challenge I would like to highlight, as Dr. Mezner mentioned, is social distancing, a term that has become very prevalent throughout this current pandemic. As we continue to follow guidelines from the CDC, we have learned the importance of this practice. It can be very difficult to manage emotions related to social distancing on a daily basis. Social distancing can cause amplified feelings of isolation and loneliness and continuous pain adjustments. If your support system feels distant, see if there may be an option to connect over the phone or online if possible, to continue to engage with others, continue to connect with people who have common interests or who may be going through a similar experience as you. It is very possible they are looking for someone to connect with as well. There are many virtual meeting programs where people can engage with one another Within some of these programs, you may be able to play games with family and friends. If you do not have access to the Internet or are unable to correspond with others virtually, consider even speaking over the phone. Conference calls can be a communal space for several people to join in. Connecting with others can also be done via email or even handwriting letters to loved ones. While it may feel as though not everything is in your control at this time, focus on something that you may be able to control. Structuring routines can be beneficial. This could consist of going to sleep and waking up at the same time each day. This could also include setting scheduled times aside for certain tasks you'd like to accomplish or pursue throughout your day or within the next few days. During this time, you may that certain activities or techniques that you have put in place to help cope diagnosis and treatment could be paused or altered. This might be a time of finding new hobbies within your home, becoming creative, and even possibly learning something new. Explore mind-body practices that may interest you and could help you become grounded during this time. This could include yoga, meditation, mindfulness, listening to music, or spiritual practices. If possible and safe to do so, connect with nature by going on a hike or taking a walk around your neighborhood while adhering to social distancing. This may vary person to person, so continue to discover what works best for you. As we have listened to our panel of experts today, we recognize how COVID-19 can specifically affect an individual diagnosed with cancer, as well as their loved ones and caregivers. This is a challenging and uncertain time for many people. Please remember you are not alone. You may find that others are feeling similarly to you during this time. Continue to find ways to connect with others. Focus on your physical, emotional, and mental health. And consider alternative ways of seeking joy and comfort. If you are interested in learning more about the support services Cancer Care offers, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at one 800 813 You'll be able to speak to one of our oncology social workers and explore the ways in which we can offer cancer-focused support. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this program today. I will now go ahead and turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Shetland. That was really excellent, really excellent presentation. And now we do have time for questions. We have time for questions from our speakers I'm going to ask. Um, that um, Crystal um, go ahead and um, bring up all of our three and explain to you how to queue up the questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, uh, we will now um, take questions from all of you. And so uh, Crystal will explain to you how to do that.
0: Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the found key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Mary L. Your line is open.
1: Hi, am I on the line? Yes, you are. Hi, Mary. Okay, thanks. Uh-huh. Um I, thank you. My question involves something that I really don't hear addressed very much. Um if you do get symptoms and you are dealing with the virus and staying home. Um, how should one care for oneself? I mean, we know about the washing, the social distancing, the hydration. Uh, should one be taking Tylenol or is, you know, at a certain level of fever? Should we start considering taking that or ibuprofen? Um, should we have any particular, um, maybe some oils, inhaling eucalyptus oil? Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Um, uh, any kind of home remedies that we might deal with, uh, I'm outside of chicken soup, which I strongly believe in, well, how else can we be taking care of ourselves, taking cold baths if we have a fever? Maybe you can give us some help. Well, thank you, Mary, for those questions. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Brawley. do you want to
2: start with that? Sure, sure. What great question. Thank you. Well, I think you should take Tylenol or perhaps the uh, uh, ibuprofen type things, but I think you should take that at any feeling of discomfort. Okay, if you have ache, if you have fatigue, if you have pain, if you have fever, go ahead and take it. Now, one very important, so don't delay, and take it as it's recommended on, on the bottle. Now, when you have fever, when you have cough and you're bringing up uh, uh, fluids, or if you're sweating after taking these, you're going to lose a lot of fluid. So, I think pushing fluids a lot, any kind of fluid, but nutritious fluids are particularly good, be they juices, or if you tolerate well milk products, or Gatorade, or that sort of thing, and certainly chicken soup. But uh, drink lots of fluid. You know you're taking enough fluid when you're peeing a little bit more than you'd like to. Okay? So, I'm a big believer in pushing the fluids, not allowing yourself to get dehydrated, which is easier when you're running a fever, take the Tylenol. Now, as far as oils are concerned, and inhaling oils, I always have a little discomfort about people inhaling uh, oils or vapor rub or anything like that because they can injure the lungs. So I would steer clear of that. Baths to remain clean and uh, and feel better, I think, makes sense, but there's no reason to take a cold bath, okay? And beware, if you're a little bit shaky, of having somebody help you with bathing or be extra careful about that. So, good common sense, keeping clean and uh, lots of fluids and taking the medication such as we described. Those would be... Uh, my uh, first order of things to consider. Okay, thank you.
1: Does anyone else want to add anything to that? Um,
2: to Dr. excellent response. Dr. Dr. Wong
5: here, if you don't mind. I'm actually on call for my service. so I'm taking calls from patients um, uh, uh, from our practice. And and one of the things I encourage you to do if you don't have one is get a thermometer because people will call me up and say, Dr. Wong have a fever. I'm like, oh, okay, how high is a fever? And they say, <clears throat> then you, if you don't have a thermometer, then... You know, it it, it, it sort of uh, reduces it to a conversation about, well, I feel warm and so on and so forth. So having a thermometer helps, uh, uh, again, coming to my theme of communication, because uh, when you reach out to health care providers, that's one of the things you can ask. Uh, when you do actually reach out to them, make sure you <clears throat> have a list of your medications and also over-the-counter things that you're doing. Um, uh, again, ripping off of what Dr. Grala said, it's important when you talk to your health providers or your health care team that they have a full understanding of uh, the situation.
1: Thank you very much. Does anyone else want to add to that as well? Okay. Um, then we have another question from our online participants. Um, so I'm going to get uh, this question to Dr. Martin. Um, nobody seems to worry about getting the virus from eating takeout food. Shouldn't I be concerned about someone coughing or sneezing on my food um, order when the order is being packaged? Uh, do you want to comment on that, uh, Dr. Martin?
4: Yeah, great. Great question. I um, I live in a neighborhood on the Lower East Side of New York that has probably the highest number of restaurants per capita <laughs> anywhere in the United States, and I admit that I am eating takeout once or twice every day, partly because I'm busy, but partly because I'm hoping that our neighborhood doesn't totally change in character over the next several months, and I would like those businesses to still be around. I think overwhelmingly people that work in uh, food services know how to act and behave in a safe way, Um, so I I do think that, and, and additionally, they're actually cooking the food, which uh, is also beneficial and should get rid of any virus that might be there. So I think, in general, most businesses are very cautious now more than ever to ensure that their employees are coming in only when they're well, to ensure that the food is prepared in a way that's safe. Uh, where I guess um, there may be theoretically more uh, risk is in the transportation of that food. Uh It's in particular the... um people who are delivering food who are encountering um, multiple people in the community, potentially also multiple restaurants. And so I'm cautious with the packaging, but I don't personally have any issues with the food. So when I receive the food, you know, I uh, ask the food delivery person to leave it at the door, then I go and pick it up at the door and uh, make sure that they have a picture, through the delivery app so that we don't have to
5: exchange
4: um, money, I'm not shaking anyone's hands, obviously. I bring the food into my apartment. I, um, I take out the external packaging, wash my hands, then touch the internal packaging, put that on a plate, wash my hands again, and then eat. I think the real key is to do I assume that the food is safe. I want to make sure that my hands are clean when I eat it, and I'm extremely obsessive about of, of hand hygiene. I always have been, but now more than ever.
1: Thank you, thank yeah. you. Excellent. Any other
3: comments on that question? Dr. Um. Moser, I would just add that you got to eat, and <laughs> the food. I'm also eating out at least twice a day. I think for the same reasons, and I think it's just important to remember that you you've got to eat. Um, that's good supportive care, right? And doing good in hygiene should make that statement. I completely agree with Dr. Martin.
1: Well, thank you. Excellent. OK. Um, um, and um, so here's a question. Um, uh, my doc, this is probably a four, Miss um, Ms. Ms. My I miss my grandchildren. Their, their school is closed, offered offered remotely. My daughter and son-in-law are working outside the house. Would
6: it be advisable today to babysit my two daughters? Okay. Um. Would it be um. Would it be advisable to to babysit them? Mm-hmm. Um. Well, I think that um, just as everyone kind of mentioned, you want to be um. You know, aware of social distancing and adhering to that. I think a lot of concerns maybe um. You know, for some people is uh people in the home you know going outside the home and then you know coming back inside um, and you know going place to place i mean i i don't i can't necessarily comment on the specific um you know medical piece of it but i do want to say that um you know if if you're able to have that contact they know that it, it is important to have some type of communication um, I know that, you know, virtually, that has been really awesome for, um, you know, if it's possible for grandparents and grandchildren to, you know, FaceTime or something the same time each day. Um, I had, a, you know, clients talking about, you know, doing, um, like, dance classes online with their grandchildren, um, you know the grandchildren sending photos, so really to like, find different ways to be creative. I don't know if anyone, um, you know, any of the doctors could, could comment on the on the medical piece of, of going into the, um, the grandchildren's home. Well,
1: thank you. Thanks thank
6: very much. And Dr. Gallagher, you want to comment on that?
2: Sure, sure. I think that uh, uh, you just brought up the uh, uh, points about the loneliness, the connecting as best you can, all great things. However, I do caution, uh, grandparents are going to be by definition of, of an older age group, and we know there's more risk by age. So I would say find
6: uh,
2: um, uh, ways other than babysitting to connect. Yes, telephone. Yes, FaceTiming. Now, my cousin visits her three grandchildren who live very near her. Very frequently, but it's she goes to their house and sees them through the window. And sometimes they sit outside about 10, 12 feet apart, and she brings them a little something uh, and puts it on the table. But in terms of regular babysitting, uh, during this time, that's one of the sacrifices, I think, that uh, uh, I would counsel that we make. Anyone
1: else want to comment on that?
5: Dr. Wong here. Uh, just to say, you know, my, my 88-year-old uh, mother just got an iPad, and she is now a, uh, a FaceTime fiend. Uh, but I remind folks there are many other ways of connecting, and good old-fashioned letter writing, uh, you know, with a stamp. I know uh, you got to be careful opening up the envelope and the rest of it uh, because you came from the outside, but the reality is that there are many ways of communicating, and, and to be aware that what we're trying to do now today is to have many more such visits in the future. So this is a temporary aberration in our in our socialization. We're not going to go back to the way we were in the in the past, but it will not be as strict as, as it is now. So uh, just keeping that in mind sometimes is is hopeful. Okay.
3: Thank you. I would just add from a shared decision-making perspective that what you're hearing is just good medical advice. The grandchildren in this circumstance are not quarantined because their parents are leaving the house to go to work. And so the conservative recommendation, the sort of safest recommendation you could make is to maintain quarantine and see them in other ways. Um, But, of course, people have the right to weigh the risks and benefits in their own lives. Um, And so, you know... Any physical contact up until including babysitting, which would be close physical contact, you know, there's a gradation of risk there. Um, No one could promise that the children have COVID-19, but as Dr. Growler wisely points out, grandparents are presumably at higher risk of serious, more serious illness should they contact the virus. But it is, you know, obviously people have uh, the ability to make their own choices, but what what I would agree with is that the, the safest option here would be to connect with them uh, virtually or in other ways.
1: Oh, well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary program, and I know we have many more questions than you. Um, I want to thank our speakers who've been really, really so, um, really amazing and, and provided so much information today. Um, on April 20th to address folks uh, who present your information as well as to address questions that um, our participants may have. And um, I want to remind you that we recognize that you have many questions that go far beyond the scope of this program. So I want to just um, wrap up and mention a few items to you. First of all, of course, you of course want to bring your questions to your healthcare team very important. They know you very well, and, and your healthcare team consists of many different disciplines, and so it's very important to to your healthcare team about your questions. The questions you've asked today, or you've heard other people ask, or the information you've learned today, take that back to treating healthcare team and see how it best applies to you. Um, also, um, in addition, I know many of you like to seek information other, other places, So we recommend, of course, the Census for Disease Control and the National Institute of Health. And we will be sending you an evaluation after this today's program. And in that evaluation, you will receive um, actually um, any resource that any of us mentioned during the program, and then some, so that you'll be able to kind of really go to credible sites. We very much want you to go to credible resources for your information um, that actually are very up-to-date. So you have to look at the date and what institution is really providing that information. Um, There's a lot of information out there that that um, may not be coming from um, what we call peer-reviewed or evidence-based medical uh, practitioners. You want to be sure you're getting it from major centers and major um, institutes that really provide this kind of up-to-date, it's their job to provide this up-to-date information. It's very important. Um, And those of you who wish to... um, have, uh, have some, would like to pursue more, more services from Cancer Care, you can contact us either, um, either contact us um, on our Hopeline or you can um, visit us online. So again, all that information will be sent to you. I, I want to thank you all of you for your participating today, for your great questions that really enhanced the call today, and um, I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.